standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. How many here have been told that Sodom and Gomorrah are a myth? I've been told Sodom and Gomorrah myth didn't exist. Just stories made up to scare people. But today I want us to look and see what the Bible says in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah and what evidence we find that might help to confirm the fact and reality and existence of these cities. And not only of Sodom and Gomorrah, but there are other cities mentioned as well. And as I've been doing in this series, I want to use the Bible as a textbook, as it were, the road map, the treasure map. If what the Bible says is true, there are certain things we should expect to find. The first is found in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. There, according to the text, we would believe that these cities should be located in what's called the plain of Jordan. The second is found in Genesis 14, verse 3. They would be located about what is now known as the Dead Sea, or as in the Bible, it is known as the Salt Sea. According to Genesis 10, verse 19, these cities would make up the eastern border of what was then known as the land of Canaan. Third, or fourthly, we would expect that there would be some remains of these cities. They would have high walls, and there would be buildings upon those walls. And lastly, we would expect them to be ashes. And they would contain brimstone. According to Genesis 19, 24 to 25, it says, God rained brimstone and fire from heaven. And that they would show signs of intense heat. So all of these things we can reasonably expect to find according to the testimony of Scripture. So now we're going to go through and look at what we actually do find. And I'm going to begin with their location. This is perhaps the most important aspect in understanding Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're going we're to have a little bit of a geography lesson, not a big one. But we're going to learn a little bit of the geography of what was then known as the land of Canaan, what today we know as Israel. Here is a, a picture taken from Google Earth. Now, these are the sites that were found in the early 1990s by a gentleman known as Ron Wyatt. Some of you may be familiar with him. What I'll be sharing with you today, in large part, is going to be taken from that which he documented and recorded in his discovery of these sites, which he believes to be these five cities of the plain. So everything that I'm going to be sharing with you today is pretty much taken from his research. Not much that I'm going to be sharing with you is new. The first thing that I want to share in regard to this geographical location is the fact given to us in Genesis 13, verse 10. In Genesis 13, verse 10, the Word of God tells us that as Lot and Abram were preparing to part ways, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. 
So Moses tells us plainly that at the time of Abram in the Old Testament, that this land, well, we know as Israel, this valley that is dead and desolate, at one time was a lush, verdant, green valley. Like the Garden of Eden, so fertile. Something hard for us to comprehend. Something happened. Something tragic. Some catastrophe happened to change what was once a verdant green valley into this now desolate and dead region. And we're going to see just what that is, according to the scripture. But at one point, it was just like the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 14, verses 3 and 10, we also learn some interesting facts regarding this region. It tells us that the Vale of Siddim, as it was anciently known, is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. So it was once a valley known as the Vale of Siddim. And in this Vale of Siddim were slime pits. The slime was tar, bitumen, as it is in the original. Pits full of bitumen, where you had tar bubbling up to the surface. There were many of these pits. And in fact, the Dead Sea today still emits tar on a regular basis. It bubbles to the surface on the Dead Sea. So this region is still has slime pits, even to this very day. But this was a characteristic of it, especially in the time of Abram. It was lush, it was green, but it was also full of these tar pits. So it could be treacherous if you weren't careful. Here is a picture, again, taken from Google Earth, kind of extended a little bit, so you can see the whole region of the land of Canaan. Now, the reason I shared this is because we're going to get a, a short little geography lesson. We're going to learn of the different regions of the land of Canaan. Because in order to understand the location of these cities, you kind of have to have a, a basic understanding of the geography or topography of Canaan. Canaan is basically broken into four regions. The first, the coastal region. It's a flat plain located on the coast of Israel. As you proceed eastward, you come into the hill region or mountainous region. The third region is the region or valley of the plain where the cities of the plain were located. And the fourth and final region is east of that in what was called the wilderness or the desert. So these are the four regions that make up the land of Canaan. And these cities were located in that valley region or plain region. And it's interesting that the word plain there is not the common word in Hebrew for plain. It's the word kikar. And I want to share with you the definition about this word taken from the whole Holman Bible Dictionary to help us understand what it signifies. There it tells us that the Hebrew word translated plain that we just read is the word kikar. And it more nearly means round or circle. Thus, it seems better to think of these cities as being ones around the Dead Sea or around the Jordan Valley. So the word plain literally meant around. It's talking about that flat area that was around the rim of the valley of Siddim, because it was a gorge, a deep valley, some 900 feet approximately. And there was a flat 
rim that led up to this valley. And that was called the plain or rim that, that bordered, went around the Dead Sea and bordered the River Jordan. So that's where we should expect to find these cities to be located, just as the Bible says, on the Kikar of the Dead Sea or the Kikar of the Jordan. Now, in locating these cities, there's a text that I often passed by and, and read and didn't think much of it until one day when I was looking at it in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that are mentioned with it. It's in 1 Samuel 13, verse 18. It's the story of a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. Saul and his son Jonathan were encamped in a city known as Gebeah, and the Philistines were encamped at a city called Michmash. And there was a battle between these two. And there's an interesting fact given to us just prior to this battle that took place. It says there were three raiding parties or companies that went out from the camp of the Philistines to raid the surrounding area of Canaan. And they went in three different directions. One went uh, toward the, the city of Ophrah, another toward the city of Beth Horon, and another toward the valley that overlooked Zeboim, toward the wilderness. And this fact is important, as you will see in just a moment. But let me give you a visual so you can see just exactly the significance of this verse. Here is an overhead shot taken from Google Earth of that region. In the center of the picture, you can see the encampment of Michmash still exists to this day. So this kind of gives you the geographical location of where this verse takes place. Now, it tells us that there were three companies that went out of the camp at Michmash. One went toward Ophrah, and the road or way that led to Ophrah, which still exists to this day, you can see highlighted on that marker. Another went toward the way toward Beth Horon, which was west, and the road still exists today. A third company, it says, went the way that overlooks the valley to Zeboim, toward the desert, and that road still exists today. Now I want to take you via Google Earth to that road that overlooks the valley. Just hovering above that road, you can see that it indeed overlooks the valley looking toward the desert or the wilderness. And it's called the Valley of Zeboim because that's where the ancient city of Zeboim was located, the northernmost of the five cities mentioned in the destruction. Now, the Jewish Publication Society translated this verse. It says, The border road that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the desert. Whereas the King James translates it, the way. A way could mean a number of different things in English. But the Hebrew word actually was indicating a road that went along this crest overlooking the valley, just as specified. So what does this tell me? That whoever wrote that account in 1 Samuel 13 was familiar with this area. They knew it like the back of their hand. The details given are so accurate, so precise, so clear and detailed, that whoever wrote that account in 1 Samuel knew the land. So we know that Zeboim was the northernmost city. But what of the other four? Genesis 10, 19. This verse also 
I passed over for many, many years without realizing its significance. Here, Moses is giving us the border, the region that which encompassed the land of Canaan. And he describes it thus. He says, The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest unto Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. Now, Lasha is the old name of Laish, or the city of Dan, as it became known when the children of Israel conquered this region. So what does that mean? Let me visualize it for you. Let's read it together, and I will put these locations in, and you will see it. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest unto Gerar, unto Gaza, unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. If I fill it in, you've got Canaan. Do you see the significance of that verse? When you look at the geography carefully, it's clear what Moses is giving. He's drawing a map verbally because he couldn't draw it with a pen. He's drawing it verbally. And we, having access to all the technology today, it becomes plain and clear when you see it. And you put these locations where they're located in their places in the order given by the prophet. It fits. And you can see why these cities would make up the eastern border of Canaan, given in the very order that they are. You would begin in the northern, westernmost, in Sidon. You come along the western border down to its southernmost border in Gaza in the west. Then you proceed east, if you're drawing a map, unto the most southern, eastern border, which would be Sodom. And then north, you proceed to Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, unto Lasha just as Moses specified. So you can see that their location is right where they would expect them to be, just as we predicted from the verses. And that's where they were found. And now you can see why they were given the names in the order that they were. Now, what about Zoar? You remember when Lot was fleeing Sodom? He pled with God, I don't want to go to the mountains because he was told to flee to the mountains. But he said, I don't want to flee to the mountains. Let me go into this little one. It's nearby. It's close by. And the fifth site, Zoar, or Bela, as it was known then, was just a short distance from Sodom to the south. Not in the mountains, still on the plain. So now let's turn to the second aspect in looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, their remains. What did Ron Wyatt find when he went there? Well, we're going to show you some of the pictures taken, photographs taken of these remains. It's not spectacular. But you will see some things that stick out distinctly. Now, here are pictures of what Ron believed to be the walls of these cities. They're kind of zoomed in, so you're looking at only small portions of these walls. But there's one thing that sticks out about these walls. And these are what are known as pilasters. Those of you who are builders probably understand what a pilaster is. It's used to help support a structure. And they're used commonly in walls. And in the lower right-hand portion of the screen, you can see an ancient Egyptian fortress that dates somewhere close to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the Egyptian fortress of Buhen. And it's around 3,500 years old. 
and you can see those pilasters that help support that wall. And that was a common structure, still used to this day. You have a pillar that helps support the wall. It's called a pilaster. You might think of it as a buttress in some sense. And you see these characteristics in all of, of these sites. Walls that have pilaster-type structure to them with 90-degree angles, angles that you don't see in nature. Now, not alone are these walled structures, but we indeed find buildings atop these walls. Houses with windows and doors. You find temple-like structures, ziggurat-type buildings. Now, granted, they are much uh, eroded due to wind and rain, but you can still see what resembled man-made structures. Now, some of these pictures are old and weren't of the highest quality, but you can still see the window structures, portico. You can see uh, doorways and windows, as I mentioned, and you can see these ziggurat-style buildings. Together with this, at the entrance of these cities were also found interesting structures. They look similar to a sphinx, a well-eroded sphinx, but they have a distinctive sphinx shape. Now, you may be asking, what's the significance of that? Well, you know who the Canaanites were. Canaan was brother to Mitzrayim. Who was Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim was Egypt. What are the Egyptians known for? They're sphinxes that guarded all their sacred pyramids. Their gods, their sphinxes, were the guardians of their cities and their sacred places. And these were located in and around the sacred ziggurat buildings and the entrances to these cities, just where you would expect them to be if you were a Canaanite. Worshipping similar gods, they would erect similar type of structures, ziggurats or pyramid structures, which were sacred temples to their gods. And they also had these sphinxes in and around these areas. But all of this in itself is not what I would consider concrete evidence. Yeah, they kind of look like these structures, but there's something more interesting about these remains. And that leads me to their destruction. So we're going to look at our final and third area in identifying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does the Bible say about their destruction? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. 19, we're going to read verses 24 and then 27 to 28. Here we learn some interesting facts regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Things that I think a lot of archaeologists have overlooked in trying to locate and find these cities. First, it tells us in verse 24 of Genesis 19 that the Lord rained rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire. Have you ever seen rain? All of us here have, right? You know how it falls. It falls out of the sky. This is what we would expect to find at these sites, that fire and brimstone rained upon these cities, because that's what the Bible tells us. And it was from the Lord. It was a miracle. It wasn't a natural thing. It was from God. It was a supernatural event. And it tells us in verse 27 and 28 
that at the time Sodom and Gomorrah were ablaze and the other cities of the plain, Abraham get him up early in the morning and he went to his normal place where he would pray and worship God. And it says, as he approached, he saw, uh, he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and it says, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. So this was no small isolated event. The whole plain of Jordan was aflame, and it was like a burning inferno. And he could see it all the way from the hill country in, in Canaan. And that's where he lived, in the hill country. And from where he was, it was visible, the smoke and the flames, just as a furnace. So this was no small event. It was a catastrophe of, sorry the pun, biblical proportions. But notice what Peter tells us in regard to this destruction. He gives us a detail that was not given by Moses. Even though it was implied, it was not given. Peter tells us that God, in raining fire upon these cities and brimstone, turned them into what? Ashes. You see, the mistake that a lot of archaeologists are making today, they're looking for stone ruins. They're digging around for stone ruins. But the Bible doesn't say that we should be looking for stone. It says we should be looking for ash remains because they were turned into ash. They weren't just have a layer of ash on them. They were turned into ash. You see what it means to believe the Bible? If you really believe the Bible, this is what you should be looking for. And you should be looking for it in the very places that the Bible specifies. But sadly, most archaeologists today are not. It took one man in the early 90s who believed his Bible to look where the Bible said they should be found to actually find them. God, in warning the children of Israel, speaks of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in this wise. That's Deuteronomy 29, 23. And he says, And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein. And then he goes on to say, as when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the result of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is that it would be littered with brimstone. It would be a land of salt. It would be a land burnt, desolate. Nothing would be, could be sown there. Nothing could be grown there. So it would virtually be uninhabitable. So the sites where these cities would be would be places where nothing grows. No grass grows there. These are things we can reasonably predict. And what do we find? Just that. Now, the most interesting thing, and a detail that I left out in the last section, but I want to bring in now, is when Ron Wyatt located these sites, he did more than just photographically document them with video and camera. But he actually took samples from each of these sites of these remains. They were broken off and sent back to labs in the United States for analysis to see what these remains were. And I'm going to share with you what the results of that analysis came back to be. The first ingredient 
was calcium carbonate. Now, calcium carbonate is the chemical name for limestone. Limestone was abundant in the region and was the primary building blocks of the Canaanite cities. Nearly every Canaanite city was made of limestone because it was abundant in that region. It's what would have made up its walls and its buildings. And the remains were ash. They weren't stone. And the first ingredient in that ash was limestone. Can you imagine? Limestone turned to ash. That takes some tremendous heat, doesn't it? We'll see just how hot in a moment. The second ingredient was calcium sulfate. Those were the two ingredients in, these, in every one of these five locations, limestone and sulfur. Limestone that has been burnt and consumed or decomposed into ash. Now, there's an interesting fact that Ron Wyatt discovered, and that was that when something is burned by sulfur, the remains, the ashen remains of that are actually denser than the original uh, object. And that's why these ash remains are still there. Those of you who have seen the remains of volcanoes, when ash comes out of these volcanoes and it settles, it's usually a light powdery substance. But this ash is dense, very dense and heavy. And that's why it remains there today and hasn't been blown away by the winds and really totally eroded away by the rainfall, which is very minimal in that region. But because it's so dense, it's there today. And what's left of it, anyway, I should say. Now, at one temperature, does limestone decompose into ash? According to documented websites, it's anywhere from 1,500 degrees to 24, almost 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. That's around 825 degrees to around 13 to 1,400 degrees Celsius. That's hot. That's the temperature it takes to turn limestone to ash. But I believe it was much hotter than that. In this picture, you see evidence of a phenomenon that is known as thermal ionization. The elements were separated, just as when you take mud and mix it with water, shake it up, they settle according to the density of the element. That's what happens under this thermal ionization. They begin to separate they begin to attract and repel, which causes separation and attraction, which tells us that the heat in these ashen cities was intense. And according to Ron Wyatt, he believed it was somewhere in the range to five to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit to cause this universal thermal ionization. This is found in all these structures. It's everywhere, which says that the heat was intense, very intense. So what, else, what about the brimstone? Uh, here I have a couple examples of the brimstone that was collected from these sites. In the left-hand picture, you see brimstone that has been collected and cleaned, so you can see it clearly. And then the picture on the right is one of the locations where the brimstone is found in one of these structures. Now, they're actually found embedded in the structures as if they were rained upon them. And Ron White said there were millions of them. And when I was a young man, I actually had the privilege of seeing one of these myself. 
Those of you who are familiar with sulfur, as it occurs naturally, it's called rhombic sulfur. And it generally looks like the picture I have here on this slide. Sulfur, as it occurs naturally, rarely exceeds 40% in purity. It has a distinctive yellowish color to it, and it's crystalline in its structure, and it occurs naturally. This is sulfur that we find around volcanic activity and thermal activity, like in geysers and, and the like. But the sulfur found at these sites is not rhombic sulfur. It's what is known as monoclinic sulfur. Now, the difference is to take rhombic sulfur and turn it into monoclinic, it has to be heated at high temperatures. And the sulfur that was found and analyzed in labs here in the United States came back as being anywhere from 95 to 99% pure sulfur. Now, why was it at 100%? Because there were a few other trace elements in there. Magnesium and a couple others that I can't remember off the top of my head. But when asked, those who did the analysis said that the elements that were there in connection with the sulfur would have caused it to burn hotter. And when he asked them to, to test and see what the BTU rating of the sulfur was, he was told that they couldn't test it in the machine because it would damage it. You, as you can see, they're whitish in color. They still have a slight yellowish tinge. And instead of being crystalline in the structure, they're powdered. And what's most impressive is that it's not found anywhere else in the world. You know where it's located? Five places in all the world. Those five sites. What the Bible tells us it was. That's where we find these sulfur balls. Let me summarize everything. What have we found? We found that the sites are located exactly where the scripture says they should be. We have found that the remains do indeed resemble, though heavily eroded, man-made structures. They have signs of being man-made structures. They were turned into ashes, just as the Bible tells us. Nothing grows there. No one lives in these sites. Grass doesn't even grow there. The remains show signs of tremendous heat. All the sites contain lots of sulfur or brimstone, rained, as it were, from heaven. And lastly, the sulfur found in these sites is located nowhere else on earth. I'd say that's pretty conclusive. I'd say that's pretty strong evidence. You have to be a pretty hardcore skeptic not to accept the evidence that what the Bible says in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah is no wives' tale. It happened. And it happened for a reason. And I want to share that reason with you as we close. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. There the apostle Peter, drawing from this event gives us this lesson. He says, God, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them a what? An ensample or an example unto those that after should live ungodly. God permitted these cities to remain as an example, as a testament to what will happen if future generations should choose to live as did the Sodomites and the Gomorites and the Admites and the Zeboimites and all the other wicked dwellers in those cities. He left it on record as a warning so that none need perish. What happened to them 
will happen to you if you practice what those men practiced. If you remain in your sins, the result will be the same. Ash. You see, God left it as an example, as a warning. Why? Because he delights in the destruction of the wicked? No. Because God is not willing that any should perish. If you're not willing that people perish, you warn them. You give them warning. And you give them adequate warning. You don't just tell them a moment before it happens. God has given us thousands of years of warning. He's left it on record since the days of Abraham. That all men might be warned of the wages of sin. And be led to turn from their sin unto God. Who will willingly receive and forgive and pardon. You see, God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Just as God delivered Lot, he can deliver you today. If you will turn to him, if you will believe him and take him at his word, he will deliver you out of your temptation, out of your trial, out of the darkness and despair, whatever it may be, that Satan is confronting you with, God will deliver you out of it through his son, Jesus Christ. Just because judgment does not come instantaneously does not mean judgment will not come. God has preserved the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The day of judgment is coming. The day when execution of sentence is to be carried out is soon. Don't tarry. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation, friend. God is not willing that any of us should perish. Won't you receive Christ today? Won't you believe his word and take him at his word? Shall we kneel in a word of prayer? Gracious and loving Father in heaven, Father, I thank Thee that Thou art not willing that we should perish, that Thou hast left these things on record for us. O Father, I pray, help Thou our unbelief. There is anything in our heart keeping us back from believing, from giving our hearts fully to Thee, from turning away from our sins. I pray that Thou will take it from us. Give us a heart of flesh and take away the stony heart from us. Give us a will and a desire to serve thee. Put repentance in our hearts that we may turn from our wickedness. For thou wilt forgive. Thou hast promised that if we will confess our sins, thou art just and faith to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, I thank thee for that promise, for the gift of thy son, for the earnest of that promise. Bless us now, Father, as we close this message. And we ask this not because we are worthy, but because we are in need. And we thank Thee and ask in the precious name of Thy Son, Jesus. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer 
health, and missions.